1 Kings chapter 8. Lord, we just thank you for the message on the fear and anxiety so far, and that we're going to cover this time now with your your word in 1 Kings. We ask you to guide and lead and help us to see what you would see us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we're continuing here. The temple's being dedicated. Solomon has been making this long prayer. And remember, he keeps saying, when we do these, not if we do these, but when we do this and when it turns out to do this. And God has always done this through the scriptures. He goes, you know, he knows that we're sinners. He knows there's nothing new under the sun. And all through the scriptures, even in the Pentateuch, he was telling the people because he was their king. He goes, when you ask for a king, this is what you're going to do. And then Samuel came along in the book of Samuel when they were trying to get a king. And he repeated what God had already told them, even though he didn't quote it necessarily. But he did exactly word for word what God said a king would do. So... You know, it's very interesting that God understands our heart. He understands who we are. He understands that we are going to do things wrong. And the Bible is full of God's extreme patience where he keeps repeating himself over and over again, telling us the same thing, telling the Jews the same things, telling the, telling the church the same things. And we see this here. And we're going to be in verse 46. And he goes, if they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not, and you be angry with them and deliver them to their enemies so that they carry them away captives into the land of the enemy far or near, yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they carried captives and repent and make supplication unto you in the land of them that carried them, carried them captive, saying, we have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies which led them away captive and pray unto you toward the, their land which you gave them unto their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which, you have built, which I have built for your name. Then hear you their prayer and their supplications in heaven, their, your dwelling place, and they maintain their cause and forgive your people that have sinned against you and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against you and give them compassion before them who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they be your people and your inheritance and you which you brought forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron that your eyes may be open unto the supplication of your servant and unto the supplication of your people Israel to hearken unto them in all that they call for unto you, for you did separate them from among the people of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by the hand of Moses your servant when you brought your, our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So here we have the last one of his statements. And he says, it's kind of interesting that he says, if they sin against you, and then he goes, and there's none that doesn't sin. So in other words, he's saying the same thing. When they sin against you, not, it's really not an if here because there's a little tag on here that all sin. And, you know, one of the things that I keep saying to the church, you know, we as Christians should never be surprised when sinners sin because that's what sinners do, which means we as Christians are sinners, so we shouldn't be surprised when Christians sin. Now, I am a little more sad when Christians sin because they have a power 
of God living in them so they shouldn't. But we all sin, including Christians. So the thing about this is when people sin, we should not get all outraged and irritated and how could that person do such and such? Well, they're just living out who they are. Now again, it is sadder when a Christian does because we have the power in us and the Holy Spirit living in us that we should not sin, but the flesh keeps coming back quite often and bringing us down into our sin. And so Solomon is saying when they sin, basically, and you get angry with them because they have not repented and deliver them into to the enemy that they carry them away captives into a land and the enemy far or near so solomon is recognizing at some point god's people are going to be carried away from israel is he being prophetic here or is he just looking back and saying he knew what happened in in the book of judges probably a little bit of both he already knew that the people were going to turn away from God because that's what they had always done. And he knows that that's what people do. And you know, so we need to be aware of this. And this is why we need to be very careful because we are not perfect. Nobody in this room is perfect. Nobody listening to us on the internet is perfect. And yet, sometimes we judge people because they're not perfect. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because God will just point out to you, uh, how many mistakes have you made? Now, at least he does to me all the time. If I'm tempted to judge somebody, he'll point out, well, how about all the things you're doing wrong? You know, so we need to be able to understand people sin. And we need to react accordingly to that with grace and mercy to them. We give them God's grace. We're not trying to make them hurt. Now, there may be a time where God says, talk to that person because you love them enough that you don't want them to continue in that sin. And there's a great value in that as long as it's done in love. And as I've said before, if you're not praying for somebody, you have no business talking to, to them about what they're doing wrong. Because if you don't love them enough to pray for them, you don't love them enough to be talking to them about their issues. You're judging them at that point. And you know, my, as I've said over and over again, usually when I found that when I pray for somebody, God either changes my heart toward them or changes them or both. And so it's an amazing thing. You start praying for somebody and God will soften your heart toward them, and then usually he'll change them. But it's your heart that changes more than, what, than him changing them. And Solomon says, when all this happens, and they get carried away, yet if they bethink themselves in the land wherein they were carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto you in the land that they are carried away with captives, saying, we have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. This is the important part of turning to God. God, I have sinned. I have done wrong. And this is what confession is all about and repentance is all about. Not God, I made a mistake. Not God, I fell into some problem. But God, I have sinned and I have done wrong. And this is very important because that's where salvation comes in. I recognize I am a sinner and I deserve that punishment and then ask God's forgiveness. And then watch God work. And it's an amazing thing, you know, when God comes into somebody's heart who professes him and confesses their sin and he changes who they are. Changes them drastically. Overnight they get changed. Minutes. <laughs> and they get up feeling very clean and they know that sin has been taking off them. They know they're not perfect at that point. 
but they're living in God's mercy and grace and God has made a change in their life. And God is saying, just make this prayer. And we see it all through the scriptures when God's people cried out to him, he comforted them. In the book of Judges, every time they felt fell away, they finally confessed and said, hey God, we really messed up. We, 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 we uh, are in trouble. God would raise up a judge to deliver them. During that judge's lifetime, they would do good for a short time thereafter. Then they would fall away for, to idol worship, and God would judge them again. Same thing he does with us as, as his people and nations all around the world. When they follow God, nations are blessed. When they rebel against God, judgment will fall upon them. In our day-to-day lives, when we're following God and repenting and, and seeking him, he gives grace and mercy. When we seek after our own desires and not after God's and, and the sinful lifestyle and not repenting, God says, okay, fine, let me let life get miserable for a while. And then we break down and say, God, you know, I really messed up. Please, please help. And you know, the amazing thing about God is he will step in and help us. Now, he won't take away all the consequences, but he comes in and gives us peace and joy and takes some of the consequences away and lifts us up out of the miry clay and puts us back up and says, okay, let's go forward. Now, you still have some consequences. You did bad things. There's some consequences, but we're going to go forward. And because he's, we're in him, the consequences don't always seem that bad because we're face, facing him. And we know that what happens to us is because of our consequences, and we just go forward. And it's an amazing thing when we go through, and it says, when they have said this, and says, and so return unto you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which you have led them captive, and pray toward your land, which you gave their fathers, and the city which you have chosen, of the house which I have built into your name, then, here. All right? So they turned to God with their whole heart, with their soul, while they're captive. This is something that is very interesting because we can get made captive too. We have been delivered from the hand of Satan, and yet there are times when we put little beachheads in our, in our, in our soul for, for Satan to move around, and he conquers more and more of our heart. And before we know it, we're captive. And for us as Christians, it's worse to be captive because we know what it was like to be free. For a lost person, they really don't know what they're missing. They know that they're captive, but because they've never known the freedom, they really don't know what they're missing. That's why they seek it in everything that they can with all the activities and sin and, and things other than God to fill it because they don't know what they're missing and but when we fall back captive under Satan, Satan, we really know what we're missing. We should be really quick to repent because God, I, hey, hey I, I'm in trouble. But you know, we get so distressed sometimes, getting into anxiety. Well, I caused this myself. There's no way God's going to forgive me. This is something that is really sad when we get to that place where somehow we think that God's not going to forgive us because we did it ourselves. Well, the sad thing about no matter what you've done, you've done to yourself. It really doesn't matter. No matter what we've done wrong, we've done it to ourselves, and the consequences come, and it's always our fault. And God is still there to forgive us. God knows that we're going to make mistakes, and he knows it's our fault, and he knows that we know that it's wrong, but that's where repentance and confession comes in. 
God, I, I have committed a sin against you. I am sorry. I repent. I turn away from it. And then God puts it under the blood of Jesus Christ and doesn't remember it anymore and says, okay, we're back into fellowship. And if we allow shame to keep us out of fellowship with God during that time, we're going to have problems. I have seen too many people to get immobilized that what was I thinking and I shouldn't have done that and then they end up being stuck. And we need to be very careful because it's easy to do. It's easy to do. And I've been there myself. How could I have done such a stupid thing and, and beat myself up for a while? And God's saying, uh, I, paid for, I paid for that. It's, it's gone. But this is where surrender and handing everything over to God is so important. You know, and trusting God. God, you have promised that you're going to forgive. I'm going to accept that forgiveness. Because we could beat ourselves up really bad. Anybody who's lived long enough has done enough stupid things that we could beat ourselves up really bad all the time. And if we're always beating ourselves up, we're never going to step out with God. Because one of the most important things about it is I begin to think that I don't deserve to step out with God. And we don't really deserve to step out with God, but because of his grace and his mercy, he allows us and says, here you go. And this is the beauty of resting in God. Resting. We have a faith rest in the finished work of Christ that allows us to be bold and courageous and not condemning ourselves. The finished work of Christ is he died on the cross to pay for my sins and I am perfect in Jesus Christ. And then when I rest in faith in that statement, my life becomes pretty easy because I just rest. I'm not having to work. I'm not having to strive because God is the one making the, doing the work. And this is the thing I keep bringing out to us. I, we are not out there trying to live in religion and doing good works for the sake of good works. But when I rest in God and he changes me from the inside out, we sing that song from the inside out, and it's a really powerful song because that is how God changes us. He changes us from the inside. He changes our heart. And then because we're changed on the inside, we come out with God. And that's just rest. I'm, I do good things because God is changing who I am inside so that I do good things, not because I'm trying to please him, not because I'm trying to force my flesh into submission, but because God has crucified my flesh, living in me, changing who I am. Then I do what God wants me to do because I'm resting. Christianity is the easiest way to live when you do it right. But it's hard when you do something wrong. Well, when you're doing things wrong and trying to think I have to do things right and live in religion, it's a terrible, messy, hard thing to do. When I'm living in that faith rest and letting God come out, life is easy. Life is easy. The hard part is when I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to fix my problems. And God says, would you just rest? Let me do, I'm the shepherd, I'm the provider. And we really have to understand, he is our shepherd. As you pointed out, we're to throw everything on him. All the little problems, big problems. You know, as I've said, what problem to God is big in the first place? And I'm going, well, God, I don't want to put any little problems on you. And God said, I don't care. You don't have any problem that would be big to me. He controls the universe. Everything about the universe is in his hands, so any problem that we as insignificant human beings would have, which may seem big to us, would be insignificant to God, and he still says, give me all. 
cast all your cares upon me, for I care for you. God is saying everything. He wants to be our shepherd. What's the shepherd do? He leads the sheep to pasture, to water. He protects them from the enemies. If we would just let him be the shepherd more often than running off and doing our own thing, we would be better off. And if you know anything about sheep, a sheep that runs off, uh, runs off and does its own thing is in trouble. Sheep have no natural defenses against enemies. They have lack of intelligence. If they don't see something, they don't, they don't acknowledge that it's existence. And if they don't see the shepherd, they don't see the rest of the flock, they get into a panic. Sounds a lot like us as human beings. God, I don't see how this could work out. God says, I don't care. I'm the shepherd. Just look at me. God, I'm in panic because I can't see. Well, step around from the other side of that hill and come and see me. I'm standing right here by the still water. Yeah. It has been said that, it, that the reason they take their sheep to still water is if a leaf floats by a sheep while it's drinking, it'll fall over, following the leaf. Okay, they are not smart animals. All right, they have no way to defend themselves. They have no no claws, no no sharp teeth. When they're attacked, they're in tr they're dead. Without a shepherd, sheep cannot exist. And God says we're His sheep. You know, and He's not being He's not being kind with you. Know, he's not being real kind when He says that when we really know what sheep are. But if we're really sheep and we recognize that we're his sheep, then we go, God, you're my shepherd. I want to keep you in sight at all times. I'm going to follow you where you go. I'm going to feed where you feed. And the problem is so often we don't want to do these. The shepherd takes care of every need of the lamb and the sheep. When they get cut, they anoint them with the oils and the, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, healing balms. They take them everywhere. If you have a really wayward lamb, you carry, the shepherd carried the lamb everywhere. All right? Uh, some of us are being carried by Jesus an awful lot. <laughs> so, but that's how much he loves us. He's not saying, oh, you stupid sheep, why am I having to carry you everywhere? He's saying, okay, I'm going to keep you out of trouble. I'm going to carry you for a while. You know, but because he loves us so much, he does this. You know, and we've got to really understand the patience of Jesus and God with us is amazing. Especially when we really realize how stupid we are at all times anyway. You know, and this is where it becomes important that I just rest in him and say, God, if I try to do things myself, I'm going to mess it up. And I've learned this the hard way so many times. When I do things, I mess it up. And I still mess up a lot of times, but not as much as I used to. You know, I'm, I'm getting better at listening to him. I'm getting better at paying attention to him. Uh, not there yet. <laughs> I won't be there until I die. But you know, we do get better. We do get better. And this is why the shepherd carries the lamb is so that lamb really starts to understand the heartbeat of the shepherd. Gets to know the shepherd really well and the care and love of the shepherd. And Jesus will carry us when we need it so that we can hear his heart get to know his, his heart and his love. And he gets to carry lots of sheep at one time. The normal shepherd can only carry one at a time. Jesus can carry all of his sheep if he needs to. But this is what he's being said. When they, when they lay wayward, but when they repent, verse 14, then hear you their prayer and their supplication 
in heaven your dwelling place and maintain their cause. Notice this. Who is going to take care of them? God. It says, you maintain their cause. And forgive your people that have sinned against you and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against you and give them com compassion before them who carried them captivity that they may have compassion on them. So he says, I'm going to put compassion on your captives. What happened to Israel when they, in, when they were taken into Babylonian captivity? They spent 70 years in captivity under Babylon. The Medes and Persians conquered Babylon, and Cyrus sent them back home. Not only did he send them back home, he paid for the temple to be rebuilt and sent them the materials to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. It's an amazing story when you look at it, and this is Solomon praying, God, when you put them into captivity and they repent, have their captives have compassion on them. An amazing picture of this. Israel, when they went back into the promised land in 42, 48, was put in because of the compassion of the English nation to give them their land. Now, this is a beautiful thing. Can you picture the compassion that God will put on your enemies? Have you ever had an enemy do something nice for some stupid reason and they don't even know why they did it in most cases? Have you ever done something nice to somebody and not known why you did it? You know, uh, I'm just, I can't, I just can't help myself. I've got to be nice to this person. It's on my heart. That's God ministering to somebody that needs compassion. It's an amazing thing when we show compassion. Compassion melts people's hearts. And it's such a hard thing for us as human beings to give in many cases. You know, it's kind of easy to our family usually. Kind of easy to those that we like to show them compassion usually. But, you know, let's just go to family, uh, friends then. Maybe not, maybe not family for some people. Uh, your friends, it's pretty easy to give them compassion usually. But God is saying he wants compassion on the enemies. Jesus said we're to love our enemies. We're to pray and, and, and speak good and bless them that despitefully use us. That's hard. That's a hard thing to do. But you know, our job is to reveal Christ to people. God's job is to get vengeance. And this is the important thing for us to remember. If I try to pursue vengeance on somebody, God will say, okay, fine, I'm going to step back and let you do vengeance, and we'll mess it up. We'll just make them angry. We'll get them upset with us, and they'll know that we're the one trying to do it, and, and everything will go bad. I've tried it. Never goes right. Uh, but, you know, if I just step back and say, God, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be merciful and kind to them, and I'll let you take care of them. It's almost been scary to me to watch God's vengeance on people because he goes further and deeper than I ever would have ever thought in most cases. And going, God, is it really taking this much to get their attention? And obviously it does, otherwise God wouldn't do it. But you know, I've seen families destroyed. I've seen people lose their life and family members of theirs lose their life because of that person's sin and God taking revenge. And it's scary. 
that would almost be better off in some cases, God, I should have taken revenge on this person because it wouldn't have been as bad. But then God still would have had to get hold of them somehow in the, in the future. God will only do what it takes to draw people to him. And this is why he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And he asks us to love the people. It's not easy. But you know, if we truly, truly believe that God will do, be our defender and be our revenger, it's so much easier to be able to forgive somebody and be kind to them. Because I know God will deal with them. How, many, how long will it be? How long will it take? That's the problem. We don't see it happening as fast as we would like it to happen. Sometimes it's years later that they get what, what's coming themselves. So might even be a decade or two later. God never forgets. And he will bring that vengeance upon them. Our problem is we want it to be yesterday, get their vengeance on them yesterday. God, they hurt me today, and then you should have taken care of them yesterday so they didn't hurt me. And we need to be careful with this. This is why all these things come down to, as I said about fear and anxiety as being idolatry, virtually everything we do is truly idolatry. If I'm going to take vengeance, I don't trust that God is my defender and, my de and the one who's vengeance. So God, I'm going to place my desire for vengeance above you. God, if you don't do this, I'm going to do it myself. You know, you know, we need to be careful because there, when we talk about you shall have no other idols before God, we make idols of a lot of things. Anything that takes the place of God is an idol. And we really need to see the scope of what idols are. Anything. God, I don't trust you to be my defender, so I'm going to defend myself. God, you're not, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm more important than you. You're, you're going to go down here. I've made an idol of, of this defense. We need to be very careful about this because anything that is more important to us than God himself can be an idol. It can be church. It can be the Bible. If I look at the Bible and, you know, and I raise it up, you know, not the person behind the Bible, but the words themselves, I could be going too far. Well, I, I can make church my idol. I'm going to go to church, and I'm there all the time. I'm not here to worship God. I'm just here because I feel I have to be at church. Now, I really feel I have to be at church, but I'm here to worship God and spend time with his people. And if I miss church, I better have a good reason, but I can still worship God outside of this. And this is the key to this whole thing. What are we using, and what become our idols? And things become idols so easily. And we got to be, and good things can become idols. Most of the time, for Christians, Satan likes to tempt us because if he can't get the Christian to stay away from God, the next step he'll do is get you satisfied for good stuff instead of the best. God has your plan over here, and He gets you busy doing five things over here that are good. And God's saying, "But I've got a great plan over here. The best plans over here." And at that point, we are living in an idolatrous place because we're going after the good rather than the best that God has in store. And Satan has a lot of these for us. If he says, okay, you're just going to stay, you're going to stay working for God, great. I know that you were called to be a pastor, so let's get you doing everything but being a pastor. You know, we'll get you, you're going to be practicing all these things, you're going to be doing all these things, and, and you're doing a lot of good things, but you're not doing what God told you to do. You know, we need to be careful, because we can get wrapped up in good things. And if we're and if we're not trying to pay attention to God, we can miss the best. 
and miss the gold and silver and settle for a little bit of silver. <laughs> you know, we have gold and precious gems over here and we're settling for silver if it's even that because it's the wrong focus. Now it's good, the church is doing, getting good work out of it. You're doing good things, but God says, well, that's not what I had planned for you. It's not what I want So we need to be careful to do it. Now, going back to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. I'm doing, doing good things. God will make them work together for good. But he says, I had so much more. I had so much more for you. And we want to be careful because sometimes we're walking in God's permissive plan rather than his perfect plan. Now, when we live in the permissive plan, God says, okay, well, you're not living in the perfect plan, which I had for you, and he already knew you weren't, so there's another plan for somebody else to fill that spot. But, you know, the danger of being in a, the permissive place and rather than the perfect place. God says, all right, this is what you want. I fail to witness to somebody. God says, okay, we'll give the, we'll give the next person that opportunity. You're the right person. You, you, you knew the right words. You had the right, the right things to say, but we'll put somebody else in there who's going to, to give, that, give the message. You know, and we watched a Christian movie one time where somebody said, you know, defended themselves. Well, they were talking to Jesus and go, well, the person still got here. He goes, yes, I knew you'd say no, so I, so I brought the next person in that, that would listen to me. You know, and this is God's work. He always knows we have the chance to be that tool for, for his use. And if we refuse, he says, okay, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a plan B. He's always got another plan, which is also his first plan because he knew, what the, <laughs> he knew, what, he knew we weren't going to live in the real plan. So you know, it gets very convoluted because God's plan is always perfect, but it's not the best necessarily because he's dealing with flawed human beings gives us a chance gives us a chance to be obedient and do it and when we don't and he knew that we wouldn't he brings in somebody else to do it and this is the important thing and it's scary when you think about it, how many times you, you mess up and don't dwell on it don't ever go there but you know there's times I know that I have messed up I've already told you all I'm real slow at thinking up answers I usually think of the right thing to say about three hours after the person has left okay uh, or driving down the road and go, I really probably should have picked that person up as I'm almost home. <laughs> and have to decide, am I going to go back and be obedient now? They're probably not there anyway. Or, okay, God, I messed up. <laughs> you know, we have to be looking at, are we going to be obedient? How well do we listen to, for God's voice? And very important that we, we act according to faith. Yeah. How do we know whether we're doing something right? We don't. We step out in faith. If we really think God's saying to do something, do it. You know, I used to tell people in, in when I lived in Sacramento, because we had a lot of panhandlers near the church, and go, should we give to them? I'm going, that's between you and God. Well, what if I give it to the wrong person? I go, then you gave with the right spirit, and God will bless you, and it's their, and their problem for using it wrong. You know, if we step out in faith, God will honor our faithfulness. Now, if it was very clear to us that we weren't supposed to, God is saying, okay, you get to suffer the consequences for, for doing it. But if we step out thinking that we should, and, we're, and it may or whether it's right or wrong, doesn't matter because God says you stepped out with the right attitude. And this is why it's important for us to step out in faithfulness with God. And not be presumptuous because that can be a danger too, but say, God, what do you want me to do? And then act on what he wants you to do. Now, one of the things we know he wants us doing, know he wants us to pray, 
We know that he wants us to help when we can. He we know there's certain things he wants, so we just do those. Now, when it says, should I witness to somebody? If you have the unction to witness, you better be witnessing because that is a commandment. All right? Now, do we have to witness to every single person we come by? No. We think about this. How many times did Jesus walk by certain people that didn't get healed? You know, I think about this. Something I really thought about. The lame man that Peter and John prayed for at the temple. He was there every day, I think they said, for 25 years. How many times had Jesus passed by that lame man and never healed him? So that Peter and John would be able to heal him later on and be able to minister. We're not necessarily to, to deal with every single issue that we come across, but be listening to God to, to know when to and when not to. And it's not an easy thing sometimes to know when to speak, when not to speak, when to act, when not to act. This is when we just trust him and start learning to hear his voice. The more we learn to listen to his voice, the easier it is to hear his voice. And, you know, and my greatest example is mothers. I mean, it's amazing to me that I've seen mothers in a sanctuary and the kids, some kids crying in the nursery, and only one mother looks back usually. And it's the person whose baby's crying. And they listen for a moment, and they either get up and take care of the baby knowing that, that there's something wrong, or, no, nope, it's not the right cry, and, and, and turn around. It's an amazing thing that mothers have this uncanny skill to be able to know the cry of their children and what it is that's wrong. We need to get so close to God that when he speaks, we know his voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and will not listen to the false shepherd. And the picture they have of this, when, I, when, when people go to Israel, they'll see these flocks get together, four or five shepherds all get together and the, the shepherd will walk out and he'll start calling his sheep. And only his sheep leave the group, or leave the group to follow him. You know, because they know the shepherd's voice. And the question is, do we get to know Jesus well enough to know his voice? We hear him in the word. We hear him in prayer. We spend time worshiping. And we start listening. Sometimes that voice will be just an impression that's so strong we can't ignore it. Sometimes it may be almost a literal voice. There's been two times when I felt that it wasn't necessarily out loud, but I heard a strong voice in my head on two occasions that I knew God was talking to me. Usually I just feel this is what he wants me to do and I step out and act. If you hear a voice, you better get, if it's God's voice, you better move. All right? And do. If he's being that strong with you, get out and do what he tells you to do. All right? He keeps on then. He says, forgive you people, give compassion to them, for they are your people, your inheritance, which you brought out, out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace, that your eyes may be open into the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to hearken unto them in all that they call for unto you. For you have separated them from among the people of the earth to be your inheritance that you spake by the hand of Moses, your servant, when you brought them out of Egypt, O Lord God. This is something that happens a lot of times. People remind God 
of his promises. Now, I'm not so sure that they're reminding God as much as reminding themselves. And here we see this over, this is a recurring for, uh, refrain in the Bible for Israel. God called you out. And oftentimes it's just like this. So God, remember, you called them out, but who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the people. Remember that God took you out of Egypt. When he took you out of Egypt, you were only 600,000 people. You know, 630-some thousand, but 600,000 people, men. Probably three and a half million people in all when you count the women and children. They had 630,000 fighting men when they came out of Egypt. It's a lot of people. Does anybody remember how many people went into Egypt? 70. 70. 70 people go into Egypt, three and a half million come out. What a number. This is why Pharaoh was worried about them. He had an entire nation that wasn't worshiping his gods and his idols living in there that weren't saying that they were Egyptian. They were Hebrews. And he was worried about them. Pretty much the way any nation would worry about it if you have three, four, five, you know, five, thousand, five million people in your population that aren't part of your people. It's a pretty large group of people that they want to rebel. And Pharaoh was worried about them. And when they were called, it was even, even better. It was Abraham and Sarah that were called. Two people. And then three generations later, 70 people go into Egypt, and then three more generations later, three and a half million come out. That was just three generations. That's what the uh, Chronicles tells us, three generations. Now, they might have been older, you know, this one of the debates, you know, how old did they live even then? Uh, but one of the things about living righteously, God promises long life to those who honor their mother and, mother and father. He, honor, he promises long life to those who are obedient to him. For people that follow God in righteousness, just living correctly his way is going to bring good life, you know, long life. I'm not destroying my body with drugs and alcohol and, and a hard life. Those who are disobeying God, well, they abuse their bodies. They've made life hard. They haven't been getting proper sleep and exercise and all the other things that go along with not doing things God's way. And it's an amazing thing that I have seen. You look at people who are truly Christians and following God, they look younger, they usually live longer, they're, they're in more peace, they're not at stress in their, in their life, their heart's not having to work so hard because of all the anxiety, their body's not all stressed out, and they tend to live longer and look younger. Yeah. And you get some of the world, and it's, it's amazing to me sometimes when I see a 30 or 40-year-old person and it's living the world's lifestyle. The world's lifestyle with all the drugs and alcohol and the running around and the, and the hard life and the stress. And many of them have looked like they're 50, 60, 70 years old. And you go, how old are you? I'm only 40. You go, you got to be kidding. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> But I do, this is something I had noticed over the years. There's this peace. When you're not burdened down and you're not weighed down and you're not stressed out, your body gets to rege regenerate. God created a body to be able to last forever. We were not supposed to die. 
But because of sin and all the disease and, and, and all the pressures that come on the body, it breaks down. But, you know, we look at this and say, God, you, you've got a blessing. And Solomon is saying, when they, when they turn to you, God, remember them. Remember them and bring them back because you called them out. For us as Christians, we are called by the Holy Spirit and pursued by the Holy Spirit, and then we, we respond, and we sometimes think we're the one that responded and called, but he called us first. In John it says that we love him because he first loved us. We could not come to him without him calling us. Now there is a general call to the entire world, but you know there is that time when we recognize that God is calling us and we respond. And we say, God, I'm hearing you. I want you. And then he lifts off that sin. He lifts off the stress. And life gets easy. When we can truly live surrendered lives with God, is our life perfect? No. Is it totally stress-free? No. But if I turn everything over to God, my stress level is practically nothing. I really do feel in my life that I have pretty much no stress in it and people look at it and go you've gone through an awful lot and I'm going have I? I really sometimes wondered what have I gone through because I'm putting things in most cases on him because I truly believe that all things work together for good and that God is in control. So okay God don't understand why this is going on but it's yours. Really easy when you can do that. It takes time. Believe me for years I didn't do that. <laughs> I lived in all the stress, and I've got to figure out how to make these things happen, and, and not surrendered, and not trusting. And I don't have it down perfect yet. I'm better at it. And I'm hoping that I'm going to see other people getting better at this. And I know that some of you are getting better at it with each passing day, each passing month, each passing year, and getting more and more at rest with God. Because when, you, when we get to a place where we can just rest in Him, it's wonderful. Doesn't mean we don't do anything, but it's just I'm not worried about anything. I just say, okay, God, it's all yours. It's all you. Uh, we have that song we sing, you say, and one of the verses say, I give you all my failures and all my successes. Now, a lot of us like to give God our failures because we know we can't do anything, but do you realize that we need to give him our successes as well? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and without Christ, I can do nothing. And I would almost turn that verse around and say, God, I'm giving you all my successes and then my failures. God, you can have everything. I'm going to give you everything. Anything good that I do is yours. Anything bad that I do, that's yours too. God, I am yours. Just. We want to hang on to the good stuff. Huh? We want to hang on to a lot of times, say, look what I've done. Yeah. You know, oh, God, you can have all this bad stuff. And I know it's bad, but God, look at what I have done. We need to be careful because it's not what I have done. If it's what I have done, there's a problem because my pride is getting involved. My, my desires are getting involved. And we need to be very careful. God is saying, no, it's all me or it's not worth anything. When we go to the way of the Bema Seat throne for as Christians, God's going to throw our works in the fire and see what comes out. And I've shared this before. There's wood, hay, and stubble that's going to burn up. 
Now, stubble is pretty much worthless. <laughs> you know, there's nothing that stubble is used for. Hay has a lot of benefit. We feed animals with it. We can strengthen things with it. And wood, we build all kinds of things out of wood. But God says, your works are wood, hay, and stubble. Some of it is totally worthless. Some of it is pretty, pretty substantial. It, lo it looked good. He says, but because you did it, it burns up. Now, my wood may be somebody else's gold and silver as a teacher, but it's still wood. The gold, silver, and precious stones are what God does in our life. And he says, I want to give you rewards. And do you realize that when Jesus is looking to, for burning this up, he's hoping that we're going to have a whole lot of stuff, and he's looking for all that he can reward us for? He is not looking to say, okay, you, you bunch of losers, let's see how much we can take away from you. You know, he's going, I love you so much, I'm looking forward to having a whole pile of gold and silver in this, in this furnace that come out. And here's your, here's your rewards. Here's your rewards. You know, to have for eternity. Now, what a reward means in eternity, I have no idea. Because we have no pride, we have no, no desires for self-aggrandizement, but, you know, he says, this is your reward for eternity. I have no idea what a reward means in eternity. I'd like to have some, though, just, just to have. Whatever it means, it's going to mean something good. Yeah. You know, because it goes, but, but ultimately, what, what would be the greatest thing about those rewards? Look at the gracious gifts he gave me by working through me. Look how much God worked through me. Yes, I let him. Look at all the great things he did through me. That would probably be the greatest thing because we glorify him in our rewards. Because everything else, if it was me, it got burnt up. You know, it's like, you want, let's, let's show you what God did through me. Look, let me show you how much grace he had for me. You know, when we get to heaven, what's it all going to be about? I don't know. I'm looking forward to just listening to people's testimonies about how they came to God and how God used them. I think that would be the greatest thing in heaven is just because that's what I love. I love hearing how God brought people to him and how God used them is one of the greatest things on this earth and I really think the greatest things on earth are going to be magnified in heaven. You know, wouldn't you love to just talk to certain people from the Bible? Now the people I want to talk to are different from most people. I want to talk to the, the widow who gave her two pennies at the, at the altar, at the, at the, as an offering and find out what did God do after that? I really want to know the rest of the story. She's going to be one that I'm going to go seek out. What, what happened? You know, what happened, you know, go to the widow of Zarephath and say, what else happened to you, you know, when, when the prophet brought your son back to life? To you know, how, how, did, how did it feel? What, what did you go through when he said, feed me first and you'll have plenty of food for your, for your family when you only had enough food for, your, for a small cake for you and your son? You know, there's certain people, I'd love to go talk to the, what's considered insignificance out there and say, just hear about what helped, what motivated them, how, how God used them afterwards. You know, to just see the rest of the stories for some of these people. Because we know Peter's story, we know John's story, we know Paul's story. You know, a lot of people saying they can't wait to meet them. I'm going, well, yeah, eventually I'll get to them a couple thousand years down the road maybe, but uh, you know, I want to meet some of these other people that had the bit parts. The bit parts, the ones we don't know a lot about. 
but they were significant. You know, because that's who most of us are. We're the bit players, but we do little things here that we may not even realize the importance of what we're doing. And I know that God is looking for anything to bless us with. Anything. Oh, you were kind enough to give a smile to that stranger. That's a reward. And maybe you made their day. Maybe it's something that you said that you didn't even realize you, you said. You know, I actually went up to somebody sometime and I said something that seems totally stupid, but I knew God wanted me to say it. And they go, oh, thank you. I just needed to hear those words to know that God was listening to me. I'm going, okay. <laughs> you know, little things that we do that you may not even know have touched somebody's life. It's very important for us to understand that God knows them. And he's going to reward for things. You know, those times when we do something big and we think we've got a reward, we probably don't have a reward for it. Because we're already living in the, the, the light of that reward and the glory of that reward. And so we're probably not getting rewarded for those. You know, so we need to be careful in our attitude toward God's and his work. And say, God, I'm just serving you. Now, that doesn't mean we can't do something big and still be rewarded. But if we're sitting there thinking, I got rewarded, I, I did so good, you know, that message was so good, or that, that service was so good that I did, or, or whatever it might be that God said, and you're, and you're glorying in what you did, God says you've got your reward. You did it, you did it and now you're seen, you've got, you've got your reward. We need to be very careful of it and stay humble and say, God, what is it you want to do through me and let him work. This is why he crucifies our flesh and he comes out. And we do the right things because we want to serve him and we want to do what he's asking us to do. All right, so much for getting very far. <laughs> Lord, we ask you to bless this time that we've had and, and look at this, Lord. We ask you to Help us to really stay focused on you so that we will allow you to work through us, that we will allow you to crucify our flesh, and that we will allow you to be the one that guides us and gives us our rewards. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church P.O. Box 65 Chloride, Arizona 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.